spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. You have been warned. Welcome to Max Mike Movies. In this, our second series, we will discuss a different movie each week, a movie that falls into the category of what we're calling Hidden Gems. These are movies that Max and I both think are fun, interesting, or otherwise worth seeing, but for some reason they don't seem to have reached a particularly wide audience. We'll go over the plot of the film in our show portion, go back and forth over the film's merits, points, and details in Lowdown, and finish up with the Roundup, where we discuss why we think the film deserves a wider audience, and maybe try to figure out why it doesn't have one. For everyone out there, I am one of your hosts, the secondary host, Mike Luce. And for only a select few of you out there, I am primary host, Max. That, that's kind of hipster, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I'm the primary host. Um, I'm a pretty obscure host. You wouldn't have heard of me. <laughs> and yet you're the best host ever. Well, I'm certainly the most artisanal. I believe <laughs> I am the most artisanal host in all podcasting. That is a word I would like stricken from the English language. Yeah, yeah, it artisanal. really should. Or, or only only applied to, like, one thing. You know, you, okay, you can pick one thing that's artisanal, and that's it. I don't know, artisanal cheese or... Artisanal baskets, artisanal hubcaps, and that's it. Poop. That's my choice. Artisanal poop. <laughs> artisanal poop. Fine. <laughs> we handcraft our poop. All right, never mind. We're going to go there. Please, please, God, don't go there. <laughs> I went there. Uh, I literally went there. Oh, um, oh okay. Let's Good night, pod- everybody. <laughs> okay. okay. This assuming week. Assuming anyone is still listening. Yes, go on. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Our person has tuned out. Yeah. Um, this week, our hidden gem is one of my absolute favorite films, Empire Records. Now, I know you probably haven't heard of it. (laughs) That's because it's artisanal. Um, This is a film that was introduced to me by my partner, who apparently was trying to get his college roommates and friends to see it. He kept going to the video store and said, I want to rent this, I want to rent this, and they wouldn't do it. And finally, one day, he said, the heck with that, I'm renting it. And ended up being one of their favorite films. Uh, I will go over the plot thusly. The show. This is a movie about a perfect day, a moment in time that will never come again. A bunch of kids who work at an independent record store find out that it's about to be sold to a major chain, thus ruining everything that's made it special. This movie is their reaction to that change as well as how they face major changes coming in their lives. And it has a kick-ass soundtrack. Would you say that's true? That is absolutely true. I think that's a good sum up. And yes, the soundtrack is basically the soul of 90s music. Pretty much. It runs the gamut pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll go right into... Well, we'll, we'll just run headfirst into trivia. Uh, the director, Alan Moyle, not, uh, not a very prolific director, but he did have a couple of other films that I know you've heard of. Uh-huh. One of them was Pump Up the Volume. A oh, film. he did that. He did. Another another film with an awesome soundtrack. Yes, and a film that we might have some reason to talk about at some point in the future. Yeah. And another one is a film that I've never seen but has been well lampooned, The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag. <laughs> yeah. Never saw that either. I've seen a couple of scenes from it, but mostly it's known, I think, best known for the title. Yeah, well, and being used in MST3K. <clears throat> True. Which is the only reason I know about it. Uh, the gross of the film, exceedingly disappointing, $300,000, which I'm guessing Ouch. isn't even a particularly high fraction of its budget. But mm. 
The movie was written by a former Tower Records employee. Huh. And we can say former in regards to both her being an employee and Tower Records. <laughs> yes, Tower Records, by the way, was a actual building that you would go into <laughs> and purchase physical media. Artisanal media. Music. <laughs> yep. Com yep, compact discs. Before that, uh, they actually sold these things called records. Oh, no, wait. No, people know records. They're coming. I know. They're making a comeback. All right, we're not going to go on the rant of vinyl, which I would dearly yeah. love to do, but I won't. Okay. Needless to say, Mike hates vinyl. <laughs> you don't don't write us. Um, no. This was actually Renee Zellweger's singing debut, not Chicago, as a lot of people mm -hmm. think. She did sing mm. the uh, last song, well, the next to last song on the album, or I should say the film, which was Sugar High. Sadly, that version is not on the soundtrack, and I know a lot of us fans would oh. really wish it was. That is disappointing. Um, while this was nobody's first film, most of the cast has continued to work heavily since this film, up until the present day. And as I said, this was not the debut of anybody, but it was probably Renee Zellweger's and Liv Tyler's first big roles. Um, the exteriors, uh, although we're supposed to believe that it's it taking place in New York City, were actually all shot in a small town in North Carolina. We're supposed to believe that's New York? Empire Records. And he also drives on his motorcycle to Atlantic City overnight so and comes back. Oh, so no, that's true. I think it's supposed to be. They never say anything. Wow. But, yeah, there's certain outside shots. It's like, wow, it's so clean and, and so forested. And the buildings are so low. Uh, yeah, but, well, you know, again, we don't look at the city anymore. But yeah. That's yeah. Um, the big music video of the movie, Say No More, Mana More, was only supposed <laughs> to appear for 17 seconds, but they shot the entire four-and-a-half-minute video, which you can easily find on YouTube and is well worth watching. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's hilarious. It really, oh, God. <laughs> it does capture that certain cheesy form of the 90s music video very nicely. Yes, it does. And uh, Max Caulfield, who plays... Rex Manning. Oh, and we'll be getting a, back to him. Oh yeah, he does a real he does a very good job at what he does. And he does it very well. Mm-hmm. It has only a twenty six percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes and was generally oh. panned by the critics. I know. My guess is that's by people who haven't seen it or they're over seventy. In case people were wondering, you may celebrate Rex Manning Day on April 8th. That is the official Rex Manning Day. And actually, if you look online on that day, you will see things pop up on Facebook and other social media saying Happy Rex Manning Day. Did you find out why April 8th is Rex Manning Day? Because there's never any mention in the uh, film of uh, what day it is. No. So I don't know. But it, I, I do. I've actually researched oh, this. Okay, I went looking through some articles, but go ahead. Why is April 8th Rex Manning Day? According to uh, Ethan Embry, who uh, who played uh, Mark, Okay. they chose that day because April 8th, 1994, is the day that Kurt Cobain was found dead. Ah. And Kurt Cobain was, for, as uh, he, the quote from Embry is, the reason we picked April 8th as the day to have the... Uh, powdered, quaffed Rex Manning visit Empire is because Kurt was found on the 8th of April, the day the music of the 90s lost its mascot. Ooh, mascot. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, not perhaps the, the best choice of words, but... Yeah, I, I think it's, it lessens his impact on music, because mm. Kurt Cobain was kind of gigantic, but... He, he was a major force, but that's why it's April 8th, as that was the day he was found dead. Uh, one of my notes, actually, for trivia was that it started filming just after Kurt Cobain committed suicide. But mm -hmm. um, Right. The writer, as I mentioned, was an ex-employee of Tower Records, and she, quote, 
wanted to show how the employees were a family and how, for some of them, this minimum wage job would be the best job they ever had. She explained, I was interested in how some employees, like Corey, were working for extra spending money before going off to college, while others, like AJ, were paying rent and supporting themselves and close to broke. This is not at all unlike my own personal experience at a certain comic store that shall be named Million Year Picnic in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> not to be confused with the real comic book store in Cambridge, Mass, called the Million Year Picnic. No longer confused with Jordan Mosh. Who? <laughs> Okay, a um, little, little New England ref, riff there. Hey, um. one person might get it. <clears throat> Rory Cochran, Lucas, who had been in Dazed and Confused, had met Renee Zellweger on the set of that movie, and they were going out. It was actually he that convinced her to be in the movie. Hmm. And, um, yeah, speaking of relationships, Cody Shivers, who plays Burko, was at the time married to Liv Tyler's mother. <laughs> Ooh. Which technically makes him her stepfather. <laughs> He looks like he's about five minutes older than she is. Yeah, so... Ew. Um, Deb, the handler of Rex Manning... Um, oh, yeah, was, Debbie Mazur. Yeah, well, but, except that she was not the person who originally tried out for that role. Yeah? Angelina oh. Jolie did. Oh, my God, really? And, uh, yes, and apparently she wowed everybody, and everyone kind of said the same thing. She's too big for this part. Yeah, she would have blown everyone else off the screen. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's kind of too bad, but it would have turned into the Jane movie. Probably. Well, I don't know. If, mm. It would have definitely been a bigger part than it was. Yeah. But. Wow. Um, yeah, the kid who played Warren, Brendan Sexton III, was only 14 at the time of the filming. So <laughs> he not only plays a minor, but he actually was one. Huh. So the movie, they tested the movie in front of a test audience, and the first test audience loved it. And then they showed it to a movie viewing audience that was entirely made up of local Hispanic population. And, of course, the local Hispanic population looked at the white, white film and panned it. So the, the uh, distributor, in this case Warner Brothers, basically dumped the film. And they only premiered it on 87 screens countrywide. So if you didn't Ooh. see this in the theater, uh, yeah, there's a reason for that. Oh, dear. And last but not least, damn the man, save the empire. <laughs> So, we have done the show. I think now you know what that means. I do. We go to... I, we, for... we, we I go forgot to... what it means. Uh, wait, <laughs> we go into the lowdown. The lowdown. The lowdown. Right. So, as I said, this is one of my favorite films. It is a teen film, I suppose, if one is, is having to pigeonhole it into something. Um, it is a teen film. I would put this film up against any of the other 90s teen films, especially those by that Ferris Bueller guy. Um, <laughs> that Ferris Bueller guy. You know who I mean. That Ferris Bueller You can't remember his name either, can you? <laughs> I keep wanting to say John Hughes. But that's who that's it wrong. is, John Hughes. That is that John. Oh, is. really? I keep forgetting he did that because I always thought Ferris Bueller was way hipper than most of his other movies, but of course I remember John Hughes. Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I've seen most of them. I've seen um, Breakfast Club. I've seen Ferris Bueller. I have not yeah. seen Sixteen Candles. See, I, I have. I've seen a bunch of his, and I actually have to say I disagree with you there. Uh, I think I like Empire Records a lot. I think it's a lot of fun, but as a movie, it is problematic. But I, you know what? It's what little problems it's got. I just don't care. 
because it is this movie that itself was a perfect moment in time. That movie would never get made today. The way that things work together, the way that the cast bonded, and it was pretty obvious that they had bonded, because you can tell when people get along with each other. And apparently the deal was they were shooting in this small town in North Carolina, and there was nothing else to do. So in a lot of cases, the cast had nothing better to do but bond and get together. Uh, the kid who played Eddie ended up in the back of a police car at one point, although it Oops. wasn't anything he did. Um, mm-hmm. It was the kid who played uh, Mark, who uh, apparently had a cap gun and uh, was seen... Oh, dear. I think he was riding one of those rides out in front of the uh, Walmart or whatever and brandishing the cap gun, and Eddie, for some reason, was, was trying to explain things, and he ended up in the back of the police car. Uh, I believe Eddie was also a minor at the time. He was 17. Uh, oops. But, yeah. But to me, here's the reason that I, I put this up against the John Hughes films. The John Hughes films, and I'm going to even use a quote from them, which are, they're very pretty and they're very cold and there's... Well, they're not cold, but you're not allowed not to touch cold. anything. But they're, uh, no, they take that place, doesn't fit. They take place in a very upscale environment. The people in the films are generally... Upper middle class. There's that a lot is of money. Not true of there are Fer- pink. well, I didn't see Pretty in Pink, but there oh, are Ferraris, <laughs> there are museums and things like that, and I love those films. But to me, these kids feel more like people that I would have known and or have worked with, and that's why. And I'm not saying this is this is not a value to saying that Empire Records is a better film. It's saying that I like them better this way. Um, I like them feeling more real and like you know, hey, I got to work this job and people that are not perfect and. And now I know, I know, the John Hughes people are not perfect either, but they feel a little bit closer to perfect. Um, and again, this isn't a bad thing. I just really like this film. Okay, I just I do see similarities to some of the flaws you call to the uh, John Hughes movie. All of the people, you know, everyone in that store is stunningly good looking and the, white. Uh, and white. <laughs> yeah, they're all the only. I think the only black person I remember is the UPS delivery woman. Uh, and we're just lucky it's not the pizza guy, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's right. He was oh, no, one Indian. of the cops is. There's a, one of the cops is a warrant. Oh, that's true. Ar- that's arresting true. Warren. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but uh, they don't have many lines. They're no. like one, one scene. No. Yeah, and all of the customers, I mean, like, wow, that is like the handsomest looking record store audience I've ever, I've ever seen. Uh, I don't know that the audience, if you start, especially some of the Rex Manning fans. Um, oh, well, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's not real. You know, we know it's not real, but... I think one of the things that resonates with me so much, as I mentioned, I worked for a comic store that felt not entirely unlike this, and I was there for a long time, and I would like to think that everybody at some point, probably when they're younger, had that one job that just, they still carry with them to this day, hopefully in a good Mm. way and not like a debt. (laughs) Now, for me, not only was working at that comic store a lot like working at Empire Records, but for a short time too short a time my best friend worked next door oh what loser was that you right and then you left that's right that's right i worked for a couple of years at a bookstore which was quite literally around the corner i think separated only by an alley uh, to uh, the to the million year picnic i worked in wordsworth bookstore that's not really a plug wordsworth is long gone yeah Oh, you know your picnic's still there. Yeah. That is a plug. Go buy comics there. See, yeah, in a lot of ways, Wordsworth reminds is a little like that. In like, 
one of the things that when you see movies like this, you notice, my God, all these people are so eloquent and so well-spoken, most of them. <laughs> I mean, not all of them. Mark, for, for one. <laughs> but, and not re- and Eddie a little bit, Eddie, which, oddly enough, makes them much more believable characters. Eddie is very eloquent, but he's just wrong. Yeah, yes, he well, just she's mi- not right for you, man. You know, like, you yeah. two are totally different. Hey, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> hey, where's sexy Rexy? Although he did have one of my favorite quotes in the film, uh, which was, Harvard is another world where big blonde guys eat ivy and row boats. <laughs> which is actually a pretty good description of Harvard. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Having yeah, worked yeah. across it from fifteen year, for 15 yeah. years, every Harvard guy I ever met was big blonde and ate ivy and rowed boats. Yep, that's yep, exactly what it's like. They all walk around with these little bags of ivy nibbling on them <laughs> constantly. It was really weird. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things I love about this film is that it is so quotable. It is. The the dialogue in the movie, again, most of it utterly not believable and uh, and still and sounds very written, but it's just so good. The lines are just so great. Ma- Max, what's wrong with you? You're you're like that little Chinese guy from Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's with you today? What's with today today? <laughs> that, I also like the fact that the Chinese guy from Karate Kid, the guy's Japanese. Right. Yeah, so, well, but you know. so he gets it wrong. I yeah. like that. Yeah, <laughs> I just, uh, I mean, it's like I don't think really about ten minutes goes by at any point in this film where somebody doesn't say something that you will find yourself saying again at some point. Um, you will be humming "Say No More, Mana More" against your will. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And the songs, the great songs, a lot of bands I'd never heard of at the time because my musical tastes aren't that varied. But just, just I don't know. Love this film. This was also wasn't this also the film that introduced you to one of your favorite musicians, Michael Penn? Mm-mm. Oh, this didn't introduce you to him. No, oh, okay. Michael Penn does not exist in this film. Oh, I thought uh, that song was it. Uh, oh God, Ship of Fools or some such. Well, he didn't do that, but oh, I thought he had a song in there. Okay, no. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, <laughs> I don't think any of Michael Penn's songs hmm. appear in movies except one he wrote for the. Over credits soundtrack for Godzilla. <laughs> wow! Called Macy it, Day's Parade. Yeah. His parents must be very proud. <laughs> no, he did a lot of soundtracks. He still does a lot of soundtracks for films, but I don't believe any of his music has ever been, or I should say, his singing, oh, thought, songwriting stuff. Oh, I used. thought somebody used Romeo and Black Jeans. And uh, something. It's called No Myth. No. Um, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, music well, nerd. Excuse me, nerd boy. You wouldn't know that because. <laughs> Anyway, um, there's actually somebody that has given screen credit in this film who is a well-known actor who does not actually appear in the film. Yeah, Tobey Maguire, right? Yes. Apparently, this is one of the stories that I found when do, searching for trivia. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the uh, the little bit in the movie where Eddie shows up with brownies that have questionable ingredients uh, mm-hmm. isn't entirely necessarily untrue. And I think the article was quoted as saying the cast may or may not have had some psychotropic drugs. Oops. Apparently, um, Mr. McGuire, who may or may not have had any of these, at one point was found in the basement of the apartment that they were staying at eating a very large bowl of cereal, at which point he told the director, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this. Hey, I think I need to find myself. I think I want to go back to California, but I want to write a screenplay. Would you buy it? At which point the director said, why, sure, I'll buy it. And then Toby went home. Um, the screenplay never materialized, but 
you know. I'm shocked. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe he can write. But his character his character was named Andre. <laughs> but wasn't Toby Maguire about 11 at that point? I don't know. I'd have to check because, you know, by the time he made Spider-Man, he was 30 or 31, something like that. So, um, what other things resonate with you, Max? One of the things that strikes me is this: the one of the ostensible stars, Joe, is played by Anthony LaPaglia, who, as far as this movie goes, he's the only real name in the movie. As Anthony LaPaglia is a, you know, he's not an A-lister, but he's done a ton of stuff. He usually tends to play cops or mob heavies mm-hmm. or tough, just in general, tough guys. And here he's playing a somewhat undefined character. We don't. There's a lot we don't know about Joe. He's sort of everybody's dad, and specifically, we get the impression that he may even legally be Lucas's dad. Yeah, there's. A, it's implied that he may have adopted Lucas when Luke, but Luke, when Lucas was thirteen. Right. Mm. Again, the main thing I like about this movie is the the way. It's not just that the music is good, but the way the soundtrack is almost a character and it shifts from being the music they're playing in the record store to just the being the background music of the movie in such a way that you can't really tell that it's happening there's also points where they they pointedly turn the soundtrack on mm. <laughs> like they reach over to a boombox or something and hit play because there's a song uh, magically queued up that mm-hmm. happens to fit the situation at hand joe's money <laughs> <laughs> I bet you notice, and some of the people have themes, but they only mm-hmm. get them played once. Yeah. Like when Joe comes in, they start playing the classic Jimi Hendrix, Hey Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? It should have been Warren. When, but when Warren shows up, he gets the song Little Bastard. Right. All Snake Bailey White. Mm-hmm. Call me Snake. <laughs> and he and is. That's the thing is, Warren, you don't get whiter than Warren. Warren, Warren is, is Whitey McWhiterson. He's, he's very pale. Very pale. Just like last week. When uh, AJ is trying to tell Corey that he loves her, they're playing... Oh, AJ. Oh, dear. Stop. Wipe the drool off your chin, please. Oh, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. You know, I had the same... When I was younger, it had the same effect with Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger, who are both just friggin' gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, when AJ shows up and he's trying to get up the nerve to tell Corey how he feels about her... They're playing Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet. Mm, great song. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing I liked about the soundtrack is most of the songs were not A-side songs. They were mm-hmm. not like, oh, this band is no for this song, so we're going to play that song. It's, it was really like somebody passionately chose this yeah. music. Um, and to, for me, that's the theme of the movie. The movie is about passion. At some point, everybody exhibits some form of passion, even if it's about the fact that they're friendless and they want a job, Warren. You know, mm-hmm. he passionately wants to belong. Um, Lucas passionately wants to save this place for his friends. Joe passionately wants Mitch to go away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Joe wants to keep the place. He loves... Yeah. I mean, it, it. Mitch sums it up... I mean, admittedly, it's one of the annoying parts of the movie for me, is Mitch sums it up just way too pat. Like, you, I hate this place. You love it. Let me sell it to you. Cheap. Yep. It's like, that was way too easy. Eh. I think it had been a long time coming. Yeah. He wants to go sell toilets. <laughs> speaking of... Um, I was We were speaking about something. Oh, I know what it was. We were speaking about AJ talk, mm. talking to Corey. 
very interestingly, and I don't know, I can't imagine this wasn't done on purpose, but when he walks in and he's talking to Joe and he says, oh, I'm going to tell her today, before noon, no, by 1.37, I'm going to tell her that I love her. Then later he's up on the roof supposedly fixing the sign and he checks his watch as he tries to figure out what to say to her, which was all ad- ad-libbed, by the way. Huh. His watch says 1.30. Seven minutes later in the film, Corey comes up onto the roof. Uh, Not like seven minutes within the film, but like if you sit there and look at your watch, it's seven minutes. Huh. And then so course, he does actually tell her at one thirty-seven, and it goes horribly wrong. Well, it was, he picked a bad time yeah. um, because she had just thrown herself in Rex's <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit, both of both of those aspects of Liv Tyler's story, I had a lot of trouble with. I still do. One, why is she throwing herself at Rex Manning? I know she sort of wants to do something semi-transgressive. She wants to lose her virginity, but why him? Because That's she had a big crush on him as a teen, as a younger teenager. I think he yeah. represented a sort of perfection that she hoped... Well, that's her whole thing, that right? It doesn't perfection. come across. I don't think that comes across at all in the movie. And neither does her relationship to AJ. At one point she says, you're my best friend. Okay, right. I'm glad you told us, because there's no sign of that in the movie. I don't mean like they don't have chemistry. I mean, they they have no dialogue together. Yeah, and that's fair. I will say the second part is a, is, is a fair part. But mm. the whole part in where she and... and Gina are driving to work. She's sitting there holding his albums, fantasizing about meeting him. And, you know, they talk about the fact that she was, you know, really in love with him in the family way, which was a very interesting name for yeah. a sitcom. Because yeah. if I'm not mistaken, that's a term that means you're pregnant. Yes, it did. Yep. Um, I don't think that Rexy, as sexy <laughs> as he may have been, was ever pregnant. I'm pretty sure he wasn't, but, but who knows? Uh, and also, we're, we're trying to figure don't out. Don't you the- oppress him? <laughs> <laughs> the timeline, I'm guessing that she's probably saw it in reruns because oh, Rex yeah. is supposed to be older mm. and the picture on the albums is much younger. So he, I'm guessing he played one of the kids in the family way. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he got somebody in the family way. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I definitely got the impression that he represented, like he was her first schoolgirl, you know, crush of a celebrity, that kind of thing. He okay. represented her first celebrity crush. Huh. All right, that makes a little more sense. It just to me that doesn't come across as well. It still seems very strange in the movie. Oh, I, I had no problem with it. I also had no problem figuring out why she left because it's like, oh, you're going to want me to do that. That's not <laughs> love. That's not beautiful. That's gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and thankfully, we never get past the navy blue jockey shorts. So thank yes, fortunately. What to me one of the best performances in the movie is somebody we haven't talked about, and that's Deb, played by Robin mm, Tunney. Great well, actually, performance. It's a great performance. You know, she actually shaves her head for yep, real. She, she insisted in that on scene. that. Actually, yeah. She, yep. She was like, the, the only way this is going to work is if I do it. And what kind of threw me? You know, first off, she turned out really lucky. She looks great bald. Yes, yeah, she. I actually would argue she looks better bald. I think in that, the way they had her hair, I think she looked a lot better with her head shaved, mm-hmm. which is unusual. I don't usually like that look, but she pulled it off. I remember this time I'm watching her do it and I'm thinking, huh, that sure was lucky that there is a professional-grade barber's razor in that music (laughs) store bathroom. You know, quite honestly, that didn't surprise me at all. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was this big steel industrial thing. Yeah. Like, nobody has one of those. Oh, we had one at the picnic. We, We used it all the time. On whom? 
I can't tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> Who are you shaving at the I picnic? read it in Discover Magazine. Don't dispute me. <laughs> it just, it threw, it threw me. But again, she pulls it off. And she is so good and so understated. Shock me, shock me, shock me, Sinead Rebellion. That is an unfortunately very dated reference. That's a, Most well, of this movie, except for the music, I think is fairly timeless. But that one relate that's why the the relate the reference to Sinead O'Connor is like oh that kind of takes you out of it a little bit. You know, I think the fact that it's a big store, a very big store that's still in business doing very well <laughs> selling music, I think that takes you out right there. Yeah, there is that. There is the fact that a record store that apparently is popular and makes money they're, yeah, they're depositing $9,000. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one night's receipts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say that. Well, we'll get to this in the the uh, roundup, but you know, the timelessness of this—it's the feeling. It's not what's depicted. Yeah. Um, I will yeah, have th- to say too. Um, mm-hmm. Again, this is this is sort of uh, paralleling what my own experiences were at the comic book store. But was that not the best job interview ever? <laughs> were you walking with a gun? Yeah, <laughs> it had blanks in it. He was fine. Uh, he's. He's a juvenile, he had blanks, there's not likely anything they're going to do to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is everyone's dream job interview. Uh, Quite honestly, it wasn't, except for the gun part, it wasn't really all that different from my job interview, so... You walked in and said, do I get the job or what? (laughs) Well, close to it, I was actually (laughs) noticing that the manager of the comic store at the time was out in the hall talking to somebody I didn't recognize, and I was like, oh, what's wrong with that? So when he came in the store, I said... Hey, what's up with that? He said, oh, I was doing a job interview. Oh, by the way, if you ever want to work here, just let me know. <laughs> and that was it. I actually got that guy's job. But that's okay, because he was hired about a month later. Oh, so, all right. And then I lasted there for 14 years. So, <laughs> But, yeah, great job interview. Well done, Warren. <laughs> My name's not Warren. <laughs> he says his name's not Warren. I thought his name, thought was, his name was Warren. <laughs> My guitar's yes. name is Warren for that reason. Yes. By the way, we're, we're referring to this because this is a character, he's a kid who starts out as a shoplifter and eventually gets hired through a very odd series. And uh, we never really know what his name is. When they catch him and they ask him his name, he says his name's Warren Beatty, and um, you know, we know that's not it. But he's Warren for the rest of the movie. That's, in fact, how his credit reads, Warren. <laughs> and, and when they make him a name tag, it says Warren on it, and yep. he doesn't object. No, eventually, you know, that kid probably went for many years by Warren and never... Yeah. Never, yeah. You know, that time I drunk, brought, uh, bumped into Warren Beatty at the sushi place, I should have asked him how he felt about his name being used that way, but, you know, it just didn't occur to me. Well, you had so much else to talk to him about. Yeah, it's like, get out of my way, and why did you wait so long? Because we're waiting for your table. But, you know, that's because of the people I hobnob about with when I'm in Hollywood. Uh-huh. <laughs> what else, um, Max? One of the things I, I, I really is, that I think is very impressive, considering how, what a minor... What a thinly written part it is, is Rex Manning, played by Max Caulfield. <laughs> I mean, he really, he's supposed to be this aging pop star, and he pulls it off perfectly. Yep. And despite the fact he doesn't really have any kind of character, he's, he's largely a cliche, and he's one of the only, the nice thing is, he's one of the only ones in the movie. Yes. It's hard to pigeonhole a lot of the others, but he's just, he's very, unfortunately, two-dimensional, but that works, because he's supposed to be, and he, he, he sort of is, uh, it's emphasized. It emphasizes the depth of the other characters with how shallow he is. 
Well, don't you think he represents the man in some ways? In a lot of ways. He represents mainstream music. He represents the same kind of thing that Music Town does. <laughs> yeah. Except for their um, their clothing rules, I don't yeah. think are... You know, because I think it is kind of revealing. <laughs> You're just going to wear that apron. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... I, I think that was interesting. I also... The odd thing is, Rex in some ways is kind of is a little sad. Because when he is sitting there online... And he's hoping to be adored by his fans, and he's getting people telling him, yeah, you were my mom's favorite singer back in when she was in high school. Right. It's like, thank you. Or that other one who says, oh, when I was in, yeah, who's your favorite now? Oh, oh, you, you, you still are. <laughs> or the other girl who shows up and she's like, uh, can you make it out to Denise? It's like, oh, I've always loved that name. Yeah, it's not mine, it's my mom's. I've never even heard of you. Yeah. <laughs> and even the people who do adore him, like that woman singing Mon Amour in like operatic vibrato there, uh, he's just like, I hate all my fans. Mm -hmm. We Sadly, we don't get to see what happens when that young man comes up to see him, because I bet that mm -hmm. was a very interesting scene. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, there again. Some of the things in that movie are a little jarring. One of the why is Lucas the only one who talks to the camera? Oh, he isn't because uh, Mark does too. Oh, he says not on Rex Manning Day. That's he's about talking it. to us. Yeah. Well, he <laughs> also well he also screams shoplifter, but he's screaming at everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know who knows? I mean, who knows? This is definitely one of those movies where if you grab hold of it and let it pull you along is a lot of fun if you start nitpicking it there's yeah i mean no but this is literally a perfect day i perfectly willing to believe that a lot of these little incidences happen to lots of us at our jobs at that great job i the fact that they all happen in one day and as and lucas even mm. says at the end perfect mm. almost perfect and then we yeah. have to go and have the nice ending with aj and and right um, and Corey, yeah Corey. so it's like okay what well, there's one scene in here that takes me out of the movie completely oh it's when joe beats up lucas that doesn't fit when i watched that that made not only made me really uncomfortable it takes me out of the movie completely at one point he gets so fed up he drags him into his office we don't see it but we see, you know, that we hear him shouting and we see the walls shaking and we know that he he is smacking around this kid. Well, my feeling is that he's actually pushing him around because when uh, Lucas when comes, he comes out, out office, he's bleeding. Well, he's got a tiny cut over his head. He doesn't even get the black eye that AJ gets when he gets taken out by Rex Manning. There's something not to put on your uh, resume. Um but the, the thing is, is, and of course I don't agree with violence at all, but it's also obvious that these two have more of a relationship than anybody else in the film. And he may be in, essentially his kid. No, this does not condone the violence for Lucas. But I also don't think it's meant to be as serious. To me, it's all, it's most of it is bark and very little bite. And that's Joe. Unless you're Mitch, in which case you get bitten too. Because mm. every time yeah. Joe... Like it's, you know, when he first finds out that the $9,000 has been taken by Lucas, what does he do? He says, don't get off the couch. That's all he says. So I can see your point. But I think for me, it was more a case of he's pushing Lucas around. He's showing how frustrated it is, but he doesn't really do anything. I guess it just when Lucas comes out, he's like rolling down the stairs I know there's only like three steps. Right. And he looks like he's been smacked around. And it just, it doesn't fit the rest of the movie and it doesn't fit the rest of Joe's behavior. It's, I just think, it's not that I'm saying, oh, this means Joe's a terrible character. I'm saying that scene doesn't work. 
Hmm. I I'm going to disagree, but that's okay. okay. That's, that's fine. what we're here for. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I thought you were yeah. going to say the scene with Guar. <laughs> oh no, I love that. I Mark, think that's you love the band. Join the band, Mark. <laughs> hey, Mark, you're really good. It's a shame that you must die. I like this because I've actually seen Guar in concert. <laughs> I love you, Eddie. <laughs> And here's the cool thing in case you hadn't checked. I know you've already checked this, but folks watching the film hadn't checked. Yes, that is actually Guar. Yeah, it really is. That's Odorous Arungus and Balzac, the Jaws of Death, and all of them. <laughs> I'm glad you know their names. I uh, did. Isn't, isn't I... one of them called uh, Ding and Ling, and isn't there um, uh, Puffin stuff? And uh, Aren't they also <laughs> members thinking, of Guar? You're thinking of Kling and Clang. What's oh, Kling and Clang. Oh, geez, I can't believe I got that wrong. <laughs> yes, and the Bugaloos. No, no. Yeah, Guar. You know, the they're here and there and everywhere. Everywhere, yep. Along with Martha Ray, condom user. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's proud of that credit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that's. I love that scene, and, and for some reason, despite the fact it's the only real kind of fantasy slash hallucination scene, it still fits because yeah. it's Mark. Right. And that's just his character. The fact that he's like partly scared and partly okay. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the kid who played Mark. Um, as I said, most of the people, as I looked at their, their resumes on IMDb, most of them have been doing various things, shows, movies, all sorts of stuff up until the current day. I only recently found out that the, the guy who plays Mark, is, uh, who's Ethan Embry, is in a show that I've been watching and is utterly unrecognizable. He plays Coyote in Gracie and Frank on Netflix. Oh, God, that's right. I think you told me that. Yeah. I for, I couldn't, and it never sticks because I can't put those two characters together. It's just like That's he's right. so energetic and wild, and now he's obviously much older, but he's also like, wow, uh, Gloria's had her hand in the hair hormone jar. Uh, he's, he's bulked out, so mm -hmm. I did not recognize him at all. But I, like, I wouldn't I, have, except when you say it and you think of the eyes. Yeah. He's got that same kind of wide-eyed look in both of those movies. Yeah. That, that sort of odd, injured innocence. That yeah, that sort of worried puppy mm -hmm. look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I do like about this film is that nearly every character, nearly every character, shows some sort of growth. Yeah. And even if we don't see, you know, that amazing moment itself, we get the impression that, like uh, Cameron, things are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, some one way or another, things are going to be okay. Um, I think most of them are going to move on. And that's one of my the reasons I put down that this is a perfect moment. Because I think if you want to project past this day in Empire Records history, that for all of the characters involved, it's sort of a last day. I don't think they're leaving the store, but they're aiming that way. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the summer, most of them will have gone off to other things. But they really? have that one perfect moment. It's their Camelot. Yeah, and there is that sort of... Unfortunately, they do fit into kind of the cliche of the classic indie record store worker. Yeah. There's a, they're, they're always supposed to be very smug. Mm -hmm. and, and, if, and Warren accuses them, you think you're so cool because you work in a record store. And they, they might. Yeah. Um, although, to and, be fair, the only person who really shows... Uh, there's two people who show sort of intolerance. Uh, is it three? Except to Rex. Well, oh no, everyone like he's yeah. so sexy. How can you? Yeah. Not? Um, so, Gina mm -hmm. cancels 
the first song. Or no, she cancels the song, the, 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 the thrash metal. The mosh, makes, with the mosh pit, yeah. it makes all the customers crazy, like, that's the point! <laughs> <laughs> and AJ cuts off his first song of the day and uh, affects a lighter to the CD, which is apparently one of the things that uh, the woman That'll who wrote destroy the film, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, she also said the woman who wrote this said that that actually happened. That was one Ooh. of those things. Ouch. Um, except I think it was an actual record and it was scratched, so they couldn't play it anymore. Because it, uh-huh. it was Dio, that's what it was. It was a certain album by Dio that this person and kept playing over and over again so eventually somebody took it out and scratched it but otherwise the the range of music i mean it could be a bit broader but is actually not quite so focused as a lot of these movies are Mm -hmm. um you get guar you get thrash metal and you get things that are softer and you get mana more uh (laughs) yeah and but you also get the buggles you get one of the you know that was one of video killed the radio star was legendary that was a very famous song the flying lizards version of money Yes, um, which I you know I I don't know why I'd known that song for years because it was on one of my '80s compilations. It's like, oh wait, this is a Beatles tune, uh, huh? And then I would go listen to the Beatles version. It's like these are the same songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew that only because our mutual friend uh, Dan played played it for us. Yeah, so but, yeah, yeah, but also you've got you know Toad the Wet Sprocket and Better Than Ezra. Yep. And the Martinis and the Gin Blossoms, all these bands I, in the 90s, I had no idea who these people were. Yeah, I didn't. I, I'd heard of the Gin Blossoms. I didn't know what the term meant. I thought, oh, it's like a gardenia floating in the punch. It's like, no, that's not what Gin Blossoms means. <laughs> <laughs> and I found out, it's like, oh, that's dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, at, at the very least, if our listener has not seen this film, uh, go check out the soundtrack because it is a great time capsule of what was more or less actual indie music. Of course, you get things in there like Dire Straits. Dire Straits wasn't what, what I called indie. But no. if you haven't listened to any not Mark Knopfler in a long time, you really should, because he's yes, awesome. Absolutely. And he likes Weird Al Yankovic. So. Oh, and uh, Mark, my uh, check, you can just send it right to me. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're doing him a big favor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, with, with our help, he might actually get famous. You know, it'd be nice, because I think he's, like, not with the band anymore. He's no, trying I to am. make it on his own. So. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that nice? Oh, you know, he's such a nice guy. <laughs> such a nice fella. <laughs> It'll be just nice for him to be here and playing oh, in front yeah. of some people. And suddenly we've slipped into the Scandahoovian sketch. Okay. Um. <laughs> At least you lived there, so you can yeah. do it reasonably. So, um, yeah. So, I big question here is why this film did not gain an audience. Well, the answer to that, of course, was 87 screens. However... Yeah, that, that's a big thing. Since then, there have been cast reunions and outdoor screenings that attract thousands of people. This is a very well-known cult-wise film. And but it's still mainly a cult. It's never yeah. really found a mainstream audience, and I think that's unfortunate, because, as I say, the movie is flawed, Yes, but it's a lot of fun, and it's a nice fantasy, and it's fun to see a lot of these people who you'll go, oh, wait, I know who that is. Right. And it's very positive. It is a very get up, go do something, things will be okay kind of film. And there's definitely some impossible... I mean, the whole end scene is just like, really? We're going to organize a party with beer that's being sold by miners on the streets of New York? To other miners? To other miners. We're going to advertise (laughs) it on TV, and nobody's going to come over and and tell us to stop. Yeah, yeah. That's just a fantasy. And also, the the funeral, the fake funeral with Deb, which... Again, it's, it's actually very nicely done. It just seems to have wandered in from another movie. I it, Yeah, kind of. But it was nice because they realized the only way they were going to get her to feel well enough to talk about mm-hmm. what happened was if they all 
kind of confess something that's been bothering them mm-hmm. too. I mean, none of them is quite as bad as trying to kill yourself with a Lady Bic razor with little daisies and a and moisture, a moisture right. But um, Also, I think that scene would not have worked at all except for Robin Tunney. I think she oh. carries the whole scene. Deb is, is the great... She's she's the one kind of downer character, and I don't want to say downer in a bad way. Although, can you? She's the one serious character. Yeah, and she's she's got serious problems. Obviously, she's she's been abandoned by her parents. We don't know how she's existing. She feels invisible, and she's got all these other people around her that she feels are are, which is why she treats them so badly. Are far more bright, energetic people than her. And Mm -hmm. so the funeral kind of says, "Hey, you know what? We we notice you, and we all have problems." So. And I think even I think even Deb, especially at the end when she's smiling and dancing along, I think she's going to be okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Apparently, apparently Burko's a jerk, but there you go. Well, yeah, even him. But we, yeah, funny. He's one of the characters we know the least about. Yeah, he shows and, up fairly late, and all we know is that he and Deb had some sort of thing the night before. Mm-hmm. And he is a musician. He's in a band. Right. I think this is one of those films that fell into place at the right time with the really now I can't say advent but the kind of explosion of home video rental stores this is sort mm. of in the middle of that but I don't know I thought that was more of the 80s I mean this well, is a very this 90s was, movie but it was a, still a thing like yeah. you know Blockbuster and and I guess there was other the chains of those <laughs> mostly there were <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. still mom and pops but this was the kind of film that I'm sure when the video rental chains were given a list of movies to buy and they wanted to buy the big movies. This was probably one of the films they had to buy along with it. And because of that, and because it was on the shelf and probably because of the soundtrack, people slowly started picking up on it and became that sort of cult thing. My partner did exactly that. He kept looking at the box saying, I want to rent this, I want to rent this. And it's so sad that Warner Brothers was like, well, no one wants to see this, so we're just going to put it in 87 theaters and too bad. <laughs> and, you know, they mm. dumped it. And Now, here's the other thing, though. Conversely, this has become a cult hit, and the people who love this movie love this movie. Yeah. Uh, the last couple jobs I've had... I've walked in and said happy Rex Manning Day to people, and they there was at least a couple of people who knew what that meant. Oh, and they, nice. And they, and they weren't necessarily people that I said it, had told them or, or showed them the movie, so they knew. Hmm. Um, would this movie, and this is the sort of the hipster thing, would this movie be as enjoyable, would it be as loved, if it had been as popular as Ferris Bueller? Probably not. There's a certain amount of, you know and I hate to use the term, but a kind of hipsterism about this movie. It's the fact that not everybody knows it and not everyone appreciates the music. It, it's the sort of thing like, oh, look, I'm clever. I discovered this. I found this even when I was not, there was nothing helping me find it. And we all like that a little bit. It's nice to feel like you've just, that, that's the whole point of the hidden gem, really, is, right. oh, yeah, I found something other people didn't, and now I want to share it with them. And I think, too, it adds into especially things that you and I do. We can quote this movie. We can oh, yeah. giggle knowing partially that the giggle's coming from the fact that the people around us are looking at us like, what is wrong with them? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but people think that all the time, pretty much. Well, but this is a specific reason, so that's yeah, why it's better. <laughs> yeah. um, I will agree, and we may find that this is true with our series, Hidden Gems, that... They're part of the reason we like these films so much is that they're not something that everybody has seen 50 times. Now, I've seen yeah. Empire Records I probably 10 times. 
Um, I've seen morning, it five or, five or six easily. And when I watch this morning, usually I like to be in the mood for it. When I watch this morning, it's like I need to watch this for the for the podcast. And yet I turned it on and I immediately started laughing and just felt like it's it's it, it reminds me so much of having worked at the comic store that uh-huh. it's it kind of feels like home a little bit. And I think, again, that's the part that may resonate with new viewers and that they may have also had that one job where they were like, oh, everybody was cool and we were actually working but had a good time. And there was the rules were really flexible. And, you know, some of those people I still think of as family. And I hope that other people had that experience at some point. I hope so. Yeah. Because for me, you know, I make a good deal more money than I ever did back then, partially because it was a long time ago. But so much of my life came from what happened in that store and things that led off to that you know and it was a golden time in my life and I think for the characters that's what they're showing that this is a golden time in their life and AJ and Corey may move off to Boston good for them and (laughs) you know may never come back you know they may Mm -hmm. never come back to New York City um, (laughs) New York City (laughs) get a rub you know and other other care I think Mark's still there yeah, I bet Mark and Warren are still there. Yeah, I mean, you know, because Mark has passion about music too, but, you know, I, he's one of the characters I don't think lasts that long. You know, I see Renee Zellweger is off with her musical career somewhere. Maybe she's not top 40, but she's off singing somewhere. Mm. Um, perhaps even with, with uh, Burko, we don't, we don't know. But this is that. This is that, that this is, a to me, a golden moment. This is, this is definitely a form of Camelot, and that's one of the reasons uh-huh. that I like the movie so much. Okay. Cool. So it's going to, not going to be much of a surprise, but shall we uh, skate our way into the roundup? <laughs> sure, the roundup. The roundup. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't. Skate. One thing I want to say right off the bat. Well, first off, we've it's pretty clear we think yes, this movie. Other people should go watch this. One thing I want to I want to warn you, and I found this out uh, the hard way, is if you try to get this movie on Netflix. The only one they have is the extended version. Oh. Now, I watched part of the extended version. I don't like it. Oh. There there is a reason the theatrical version is the theatrical version. They extend things I think are unnecessary. For example, the the trip that Lucas at the beginning takes to uh, Atlantic City is like three times as long. Oh. No, 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 no. For, there is this wonderful little throwaway line when uh, people are, are hearing the news about what Lucas has done, and Eddie comes in and says, Hey, Lucas, I heard you ran off with a mobster's wife, and now there's a hit out on you. And you, you think, Oh, that's funny. That's just like the story's getting garbled. No, that's an actual subplot. Oh. He does, in fact, somehow get mixed up with a mobster's girlfriend in, in Atlantic City, and this mobster's after him. Was it the blonde woman that was next to him saying, oh, you used to be cute? I think so. I can't remember. It was Totally that, unnecessary. It, it, it was. And the other problem, and I thought this was like, this really was uh, one of those scenes where you go, I see why you cut that. There is a sequence where Burko has a long exchange with Rex Manning. Huh? After after Rex has left the Empire and is outside, Burko comes over and they start talking about what it is to be a professional musician. And Manning is basically the older, cynical one saying, look, you're going to have to make compromises. You're going to have to do whatever the label tells you to do. And Burke was like, no, man, that's not going to happen to me. He said, yeah, that's what I thought. Huh. It's wow, like, what a downer. <laughs> not only a downer, it's like, what movie are you filming? 
Wow. Yeah, so I really recommend try to see the actual theatrical release. Don't wait. Don't bother with the extended. That's the one that I have, and it's obvious that the studio did not care one way or the other because when the film starts and it's just the Warner Brothers logo, you can see little flecks and little scratches and stuff yeah. in the film. And yeah. it's just like, yeah, here, DVD, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's the only other time I've seen a version of a film like that on DVD was the original theatrical release to Star Wars Ooh. because the fans really, really wanted it. They wanted to see it the way you and I saw it actually back in the theaters in 1977 mm -hmm. where there was none of this episode four, none of this... When I had just been born. <laughs> I thought you were born when it was re-released -re back in the 90s. Yeah, that's Best friend what I whom meant. I went to high school with. That, that's exactly what I meant. You are a fibber. <laughs> that's what uh. you are. Um, and there was so much fan pressure, although you know, I'm amazed that Lucas felt any pressure at all. And I mean George Lucas, not the Lucas in this film. Yeah. Um, that he finally went, fine, 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 here's your stupid movie. He released it once on DVD, and it was just some print that had been lying around. And it does have scratches and everything. It's like they did not oh, try to you know, refresh it or, or otherwise Clean restore it. Or, uh, no, it was just like, here. <laughs> and everybody bought it. Yep, I have a copy, and of course it's worth you know fifty bazillion dollars on mm. on eBay because it still has it was it was released twice. The actual mm. original theatrical release of Star Wars came out twice: once on Laserdisc, oh wow, and once on DVD. I happen to have the DVD because it was now, like. Does, does yours say Episode Four? No, it does not. Because ah. and I, and that's one of the reasons I bought it. I already had a copy of Star Wars, but I was like, I swear, when I was twelve years old, this did not say Episode Four. No New Hope. None of that crap. And because, of course, once Empire came out, all of the versions of Star Wars, you know, the rented ones, the, the video cassettes and stuff, had that put in. Uh, it was the only okay, change, I think... Hang on, hang on. We're getting on to an entirely oh. different set of movies here. People love that. <laughs> well, well, you know, that's another hidden gem. Star Wars is not well known by people. <laughs> no, no, that's right. Uh, that was really kind of an art house movie that yeah, uh, you know, really if didn't go anywhere. No, you know, you know, if I say Star Wars, people look at me blankly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, Empire Records didn't have its audience, uh, didn't get well played. I'm going to go out on a limb, though, here, not so much of a limb, and say that a large part of the film is anachronistic because it takes place in and around a record store, something that almost doesn't exist anymore. Mm. These days, it's mostly a record department in something like a bookstore or something like that, or, yeah. you know, people are buying them online. I'm guilty as anything. Or it's else. a little hole in the wall place. Right. It's more like. Uh, high fidelity yeah, um, yeah than it is i mean there's nothing that big that just sells records there just isn't mm. um even downtown boston which has one of its chains and no i won't mention them because they're not paying me uh, <laughs> uh sells tons of other things toys t-shirts you know merchandise posters lots Movies. of other things yep. yeah 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 so it's just that part of it is just not a thing but what it represents which is a mom and pop business that's successful and loved that that's still there but a lot of the other stuff you know there's not a cell phone to be seen gee i wonder why yeah. um it's just fine because thankfully this is a film that would have no cell phone would have no impact on it at all you know mm. oh somebody called the cops with a cell phone big deal um doesn't make any yeah, difference because but, yeah because that kind of communication almost the entire movie takes place in one building Right, in one day. Uh, originally, yeah. the film was supposed to take place over two days, but I agree mm -hmm. with the, the assessment that yeah. one day was, was perfect. did not no, need to be no, two days. it did not. So, 
Yeah, so Max and I both heartily recommend this film. Yep. I will say that it easily holds up to multiple viewings. You will be quoting this film. You will be celebrating Rex Manning Day. April will, 8th, be there. Or, or we will find you and pummel you, because that's yep. how it goes. Yep. Um, so with another one of our hidden gems. Otherwise, I guess, um, anything else, Max? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. So now so, we come to the most awkward part of our broadcast. Well, no, no, no. The Max, is, Max is being... Max is being facetious. Because it's a new series, Max and I have spent hours working yeah. on... Um, we, uh, we, we we did work yeah. on this, didn't we? I thought you did. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was your turn to work on no, this. No, no, I think I'm pretty sure... When I said no, we, were... I specifically meant you. No, no, I, I, I'm checking the email. I don't see anything about that I'm supposed to have done a, a, a carefully wrapped up and uh, professional ending. Look uh, in I'm your sure junk you. folder. Look in your junk folder. That's where all your email is. <laughs> well, whose fault is that? <laughs> so I guess what we're saying is that we still don't know how to end this this show. So yep. I guess we'll end the show by saying this is the end of the um, uh, show. Oh, show, right. Yes. Good night, right. everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Watch ahead, won't you? It's more fun that way. Next week, Max and Mike are going to be talking about the movie Max Headroom. 20 minutes into the future. Don't miss it, or else. Want to contact us? You can find our episodes online at maxmikemovies.com or follow our Twitter feed at maxmikemovies. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.